Amen. So I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 16. And uh, today we come to the uh, last sermon in uh, 1 Corinthians. So I've been reading a couple books uh, lately. Uh, one I read uh, is Daughter and a number of uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, recommended by Laura Rader and my daughter. And a number of people are like, this is one of the best books I've ever read. So I'm like, all right, I've got to get that book. So I got the book, and I have um, an issue when I read books, okay? I'm not really into, I think they usually call them four words, right? The thing that comes before, and preludes, and prologues, and after, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because usually those portions of books tend to carry stuff that I'm not really interested in. Now, in this book, I was terribly mistaken uh, because a lot of the, the history of the individual's life is, was amazing, compelling, challenging. And so every part of the book had very important aspects to it and things that were extremely helpful. Well, the same thing is true, I think, when we come to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this, it, it, what, what happens is concluding thoughts in books tend to lack strong organization and kind of a a focused point, okay? And I think that's why it's just kind of yeah, 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 yeah kind of stuff. But as I spent time this week praying through and studying through this passage of Scripture, it becomes very clear that what is in this portion of the text is not filler. Paul's not coming up with some things to say to finish the chapter so that it's equal in length and number of verses to the previous chapters. All right, there are important truths that he's going to communicate as he kind of ends this letter. And the thing that you're going to find is this portion of 1 Corinthians 16 helps us to understand Paul's view of the church, okay, how he understands life together. And what he does, I believe, in this text is he casts a compelling... I just want to turn my fan down so if I back away, you don't hear wind, okay? Uh, He gives us a compelling and powerful vision of the local church and challenges us as the church to value uh, life together. Okay, so it, it's, a, it's a portion of Scripture that is saturated with truth about life together. And so as we go through this, my prayer is that it would influence our view of what it is to be part of a local church family, what that means for us. And I I think what Paul is communicating really is the atmosphere of the early church. It was saturated with the truth that we are family, that we are the body of Christ, that we are a brotherhood, we are a band of brothers. God has called us into something larger than ourselves that takes us out of an individualistic view of living and calls us into community. Paul does this throughout his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 16, here's what you're going to find. I'll give you this quick overview. You're going to find that he mentions seven personal names, and then four or five times he's going to allude to groups of people, okay, churches or brothers and sisters that are effective in certain specific areas of ministry. If you were to go to Romans chapter 16, now listen to this, Paul mentions 28 individuals by name for which he is grateful or for which he has concern. Okay, so there's something substantial in Paul's mind about this idea of life together. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I I just did a quick calculation in my mind. Paul seems to spend 15 to 20% of that letter, 
all right, of, first, first, of Second Timothy, he seems to spend about 20% of his time talking about the lives of specific individuals, okay? And in, in, in the verses that end that chapter, it occurs 17 times. And I think what Paul would say to us is this, nothing of value in our lives as believers happens apart from our relationship to one another. Okay, God has called us into something that has a vital importance in his thinking, in his plan. And that is that we are part of the body of Christ, the local church, and our life together is a crucial concern to God, and that is communicated through those that recorded the New Testament scriptures. Life together is energized by the Spirit's gifting, but it is not free from trouble. In fact, and this is the truth, the more you spend time together, the likelihood of friction tends to go up or down in your life. All right? I think the more you spend time together, the more chance there is of conflict. And I think that's why sometimes people relate to the church in a very casual, non-committed fashion. They just don't want to deal with strife. They don't want to deal with struggle. They don't want to deal with conflict or confrontation. And so they choose a road that has no resistance, but that also has no impact or value. If you make a decision to adopt the biblical view of church life, it's going to cost you. It's not a bed of roses. There are no perfect churches. So if you're visiting with us today and you say, I'm looking for a church that doesn't have problems. Okay, number one, I'm on the pastoral team, so that's... <laughs> I'll tell you something, okay? No, I mean, you, you, it, you, it's like family, right? Sometimes you think your family is the worst family in the world until you start talking to other people about their families, and then you become thankful for your family, right? And that's the way it is in life, folks. And Paul takes time to address the area of relationships, and every time he's doing it, there are lessons bound up in it. Okay, I got to move this piece of paper because it is so distracting to my ADD. I keep wondering what's on it. It's like in my peripheral. It's driving me nuts. That's my problem, okay? I don't want it to become yours. Okay, so be careful with your expectations as you begin to look at God's view of body life or of church as family. You need to have expectations that are realistic. That you understand that part of relating to one another is learning to deal with problems. Remember, uh, in, in, in a premarital setting, we were to write down three positive and three negatives about the person that I was considering marrying, my dear wife. I, my wife's glaring flaw, and she's right here, okay, so I can see. <laughs> and all, some of you are thinking, no, I can't, he's not going to go there. No, I am. I am. Like, I couldn't come up with three. I'm going to tell you that. I, like, I seriously was like, three negatives. I got one. And my wife struggles with time management because she's so devoted to whatever it is that she's doing that she just loses track of time. It's just the way my wife is wired. I'm not wired that way. Okay? So I've had to learn how to live life together with that. And if you want to ask her after the service, she came up with three immediately. So, not because she's smart and thoughtful, it was just obvious, okay? So, it's, it's as we commit to what Paul's talking about, I want you to know that it's not without trouble. 
There are times that we have to sit down and work through difficulties and disagreements. And that's what Paul's going to do in this portion of Scripture. He's going to walk us through circumstances in relationship to specific individuals. So there was also for Paul a level of transparency as he talked about it. It wasn't church secrets for Paul. It was life. Life in a context that he loved with people that he was devoted sacrificially to the encouragement and growth of. And so as we work through it, I want you to kind of have that perspective. My aim this morning is to challenge how we view the body of Christ and our relationship to it. I hope for you it's more than a Sunday service. And I realize in America, for many, many people in the church, Sunday morning is their church life. And I want to encourage you to step beyond that and to move into life-giving, life-caring relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ so that you begin to partake in all that God has for you. The, the focus here is corporate, not individual. However, Paul's going to talk about individuals to help us see the bigger picture. Does that make sense? He's got to talk about individual parts and circumstances so that he can address the bigger concern that he has for the church. That's what Paul's life as an apostle was devoted to. So I want to begin reading in verses 5 through 7 as Paul begins. He says, after I go through Macedonia, which was a region of churches, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For, and notice his rationale, I do, want to, do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I want to spend time with you, if the Lord permits. And that starts to uncover a little bit of Paul's heart. Paul's not like, I want to come by, be the traveling preacher who unloads and leaves before the consequence can catch up with me. Paul wants to teach them the Word of God and show them how to live it together. Because the local church, the body of Christ, had priority in Paul's experience and life as an apostle. And he wants us to capture that vision of body life. Paul's aim is very clear. He's coming to stay to do the work of God. Verses 8 and 9 tells us his reason for not being able to come right now. He says, but I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. That is till the spring, Easter season. Because a great and effective door for work has opened to me. But there are many who oppose me. So what is Paul saying? The reason I can't come is I'm devoted to serving others in this context. When that work is done, I'm going to come your way and serve you in a similar fashion. What is on Paul's mind as he writes is the team that stands with him. And I think if I was to use two words, and I, I take these from a book that I read on body life. Paul's view of the church is that I am needed as a party of as a part of God's church, and I am needy, okay? Does that make sense? I'm needed. People need the, the gifting that God has given to me, and I need the gifting that God has given to others, okay? So Paul is not coming as a boss, as a teacher only. He's coming as a brother or sister in Christ who is seeking to gain benefit and to give benefit there's an understanding a humble walking in paul's life that causes him to relate very intimately to his brothers and sisters in the body of christ so now what paul's going to do and i'm just going to work through three case studies if you will 
He's going to talk about Timothy, about Apollos, and then about Stephanus. Okay, so we're just going to walk through these three individuals' unique, distinct circumstances that Paul's addressing. And uh, so let's just work through them. So the first one is this. Case one is Timothy. And this, I would say, is helping one who struggles. Look at verse 10. Paul says, when Timothy comes... I don't know how to respond to that. I really do. Never preached with background music, so. Okay. Case one, Timothy. And I titled this one, Helping Someone Who Struggles. Helping Someone Who Struggles. Here's what he says. He says, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Okay, Timothy, a case study in how to help someone who struggles. I want you to notice how Paul addresses this. If you know Paul's life at all as a a servant of Christ, you know that Timothy was his protege. Timothy was a a disciple of Paul's. He's someone that Paul had nurtured, had mentored, had poured his life into. And as we study the overall picture of Timothy's life, we know that Timothy is someone who struggled with, for lack of a better word, confidence. All right, he was, we would say he was a timid individual at some level. All right, so in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on the fact that you're young, but be an example of the believer in word and in truth. Live the life, gain the respect of people through the life that you're living. And so that's, uh, that's Paul's view of Timothy. There's a tendency to be timid, to be weak. He needed encouragement. And so as Paul writes, he's very specific with the church, he says in verse 10, be sure that Timothy has nothing to fear. Now, why might that be true? Okay, I think there, there may be two reasons why, why that's true. Timothy had a natural tendency towards being and feeling weak. Okay, but secondly, Timothy was sent in Paul's place. All right, and you can start to sense the kind of tension that may bring. We know that the church in Corinth was kind of caught up with personality. They liked powerful leaders. And Paul himself doesn't come. He sends Timothy as someone who stands in his place or who is serving at his request. So Paul says, first, be sure that Timothy has nothing to fear. He's sent to remind you of the way that Jesus wants you to live. And then verse 11, he says, don't And my translation says it this way. No one should treat him with contempt as nothing or as unimportant. Why would Paul say that? I think the reason that he says that is this. Paul was an apostle and held an apostolic office in the early church. Timothy held a lesser position from a human perspective. And so the concern that Paul has as Timothy comes to do the work of God, the work that I'm doing, Treat him as someone who has been sent, who has intrinsic authority under Paul's leadership. So he says, don't disregard 
don't despise, don't treat as unimportant. Instead, treat him well. And then verse 11, he says, why? Send him on his way. I'm sorry, verse, uh, the middle of verse 10, he says, when Timothy comes, remember he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. So Paul sees Timothy as someone who is committed to and devoted to doing the work that God has called him to do. And Paul's, Paul's concern is that they would treat Timothy as less valuable because Timothy didn't hold a prominent position. And Paul wants them to have a, a broader understanding of the work of God and to value someone who tended to struggle. So the second half of verse 11 says, send him on his way in peace. And the idea of sending him on his way is a, is a missionary term as you read through the book of Acts. It often included resource him for the journey and for the work that God has called him to do. Do something to encourage him in the work that God has laid before him. Do your best, he says to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 4 9. Paul will say to Timothy, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Okay, it's the end of Paul's life. He's in a season of difficulty. He's lost some dear friends. He's got faithful people with him. But he wants Timothy to come because he has learned Timothy's value. And he wants this church to also adopt that same understanding. To not treat with contempt people who are struggling. But to take time to encourage, to lift up, to walk with people in their season of need. In Matthew 10, 12 and verse 30, speaking of Jesus, here's what the Word of God says. It says, He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a dying flame or a flickering candle. In other words, He will come to encourage those that are broken to relight the flame, to fan the flame with air so that it can reignite and be useful. That's how Paul saw Timothy. Folks, in every church... There are people that struggle in their walk. And all of us, the truth is, go through seasons where we have unique, pointed, intense needs. And in that case, what am I? I'm a needy person. There are other times that I'm sensing that there are needs around me, and I need to step up and say, how can I help this person? Right? That happened this week in our church. I was away on Thursday. I got a text from Kathy Halpin that Laura Mack's mom had passed away. And here's all she said to me was... Uh, Ken, Fran, and I are going to the funeral. And I know why, I didn't even talk to Kathy, but I know why Kathy sent that to me. She wanted me to know that that base was being covered. When I thought of that, here's what came to my mind. Laura and Fran have a ministry in our church called Grief Share. It's a very powerful ministry to people who are struggling with loss of loved ones. And I thought it was amazing that someone who has been needed Laura serving others was now in a position where she was needy and it was kind of called just in my mind to think how that was working in the context of church life not because a pastor called Kathy and said hey can you guys make sure that her needs are covered no it was because there are people within the context of our church family and I pray that this is something that will rise people who sense needs and don't call the pastors they sense needs and meet them because they believe and understand that there are times that I need help and there are times that I am needed to assist those in the context of our church life 
A healthy church is not a church where pastors do everything. A healthy church is a church in which people understand that at times there are people like Timothy in the midst who need to be served. And when they sense the need, they step up and meet it. Because that's the essential and basic definition of ministry in the Bible. So get the understanding. I am needy. Yes, I need to receive from the church of God. But I am needed in the church of God and need to pour myself out for those who have unique circumstances from time to time in their lives. That's the nature of life together that Paul is pushing. I want to ask you this question this morning. Who who in your sphere of influence is fractured? The candle of their life is dimmed by dark circumstance that you're reaching out to. Because that's Paul's vision of the church. That from time to time, every one of us goes through a season of struggle. And we are needy. It's exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, Timothy, come to me quickly. Fascinating, isn't it? That years later, the one that Paul had encouraged that others serve him to build him up and make him a substantial servant of God, that that is the individual that Paul writes to and says, Timothy, in the past you needed to see me, but today I need to see you. So I ask you the question, Who in your sphere of influence are you serving that's slightly fractured or slightly dimmed and they need someone to come along their side and encourage them? Here's what I want to say to you. If your relationship to the body of Christ is Sunday morning only, I'm going to guess that the answer is there's no one that I am currently serving and helping. Because it takes a larger commitment to relationships that are vital and life-giving so that the brothers and sisters around us that are in need can be built up and that when we're needy, we can be built up. I've experienced both of them in the context of this church family, and I thank God for that. The second person that Paul talks about is in verse 12. He says, now about our brother Apollos. So he's bringing up, perhaps the people in Corinth had asked for Apollos to come, not sure exactly what's going on. What we do know is that when we bring up the name Apollos, it rings a bell from chapter 3, right? Within the church in Corinth, there were were people that sang, I love to hear Apollos. And there were people saying, I love to hear Paul. And there was a division in this body that was to be unified. And it was a problem that Paul is seeking to address in this letter. Okay? To be clear, it becomes very apparent that the problem in the church regarding Apollos was not Apollos's fault. He was just a servant of God. The problem was people in the church kind of lining up with loyalties towards specific individuals, which was a violation of what it is to be part of the body of Christ or the family of God. And so Paul writes specifically about Apollos. And I love, I love the thought of this text that Paul, when there's a need in Corinth, has no qualms about saying, Apollos, in spite of all of the background noise in Corinth relating to you and I, it was never personal between Paul and Apollos. They both saw themselves as servants of God. And Paul said, if I'm going to go, that's fine. But if I'm not free to go, I'm going to encourage Apollos to go. And you'll notice in the text that Paul goes to Apollos and says, hey, Apollos, they could use you in Corinth. Paul says, I urged him to go. I pressed on him. But 
he was discerning that it wasn't God's will for him at that time. And so Apollos didn't go then, but Apollos made a commitment, I'll go in a little while as things free up in my life. And, and Paul and Apollos come to the handshake agreement, okay, great, you'll take care of that need. Now, what I find fascinating in Paul sending Apollos is this sense of deference, if you will. He defers to Apollos' gifts for the need that's present. He's not competitive. He's not concerned that if Apollos goes, you know, he may gain a little more attention or approval than I'm getting. Paul doesn't play those kinds of games. He's in it for the glory of God. He's in it so that the church of Christ can grow and be strengthened. And so there's no hesitation on his part to send uh, Apollos back to meet a need that was present. The sad truth is that some in the context of church life become jealous or needy of people's approval. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had someone get attention and praise for something that they didn't do that you actually did, but they're getting the credit for it? Sounds like work, doesn't it? Right? Happens all the time. Paul had no concern for that. But Paul wasn't he wasn't posturing. He wasn't, you know, exercising social chemistry to figure out the best way to, for him to be the most important man. It wasn't part of his thinking. His concern was that the body of Christ would be strengthened and built up. And I love the way that Paul describes himself and Apollos as I've reflected back on 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He says, what is Paul and what is Apollos? Here's his view. We're servants of Christ. We're the ones that God used to bring the word of Jesus to. The focus is Jesus, not us. And that, that perspective liberates Paul from any need to have man's approval or to need people's applause. He was quite content for Apollos to be respected as long as it didn't end up dividing people into parties and groups and cliques in the church. And I think that's a powerful lesson for us. Paul could freely send Apollos because he was absolutely committed to partnership in ministry without jealousy. Apollos could help, and to Paul, that was all that mattered. Can I ask you a question this morning? As you think about the people around you in the body of Christ, your relationships, can you, like Paul, look at them and say, I thank God for the gifting he's given you. I thank God for the way the Spirit is at work in your life, the, the unique giftings and tendencies that He's placed in your life. And as you unleash them, I see you flourishing in your ministry. Does it give you joy? Can you come alongside and encourage without jealousy? Okay, that's the question. I encourage you to think about that. Do I happily appreciate the gifting of God in the lives of others? I think of the words of Jesus who said, I'm among you as one who serves. May that be our heart as a church. That it's not about... See, servants never live for applause. They always live for the glory of the Master. And when Jesus was here, He lived for the glory of God. He could always say, I am about my Father's business. I want God to be glorified in every aspect of my life. May that be our heart. And I think this interaction between Paul and Apollos helps us to understand that. The last illustration in the text drops me down to verse 15. Paul says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia. 
And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. So Paul's kind of doing what? <clears throat> he's taking the household of Stephanus and he's saying, these people get it. I mean, he, he, can, he can lift them up as an example of what the church is to be like. They devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. What does it mean to devote yourself to the Lord's people? Well, this word is interesting because in the original language it has the idea that they appointed themselves, meaning they understood God's call and gave themselves in a committed fashion to a specific body of Christ for that church's benefit. Okay, they, they took it as a calling, received it, and made a choice internally in their hearts to say, yes, we'll devote ourselves to this cause. Now, it kind of kind of leans in that way. One of the translations says they were addicted to the service of God's people. And the idea of that would be they couldn't live without interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ. It was an essential and important part of their personal experience. How does Paul encourage us to respond to that? Look in verse 16. So people devote themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And Paul, in the end of verse 15 into 16, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors in it. That's fascinating. So here's an individual who has two friends with him, and their families have devoted themselves to the work of God sacrificially. And what does Paul say? Paul says those servants come underneath of them. And the idea is to so honor their contribution that it begins to permeate and affect your own life. Come under them. Learn from them. Be mentored by them. Because they get church life. I think it's a fascinating turn in this. Submit yourselves to them. Come under them. And I think this is what Paul's saying. Their authority as leaders is legitimized by their Christ-like sacrifice and service. That's why, folks, all of the pomp and circumstance that often goes along with leadership in the church must be killed. It's not helpful to the church. It sets up classes of people in the church those that are needy and those that are needed, as opposed to saying, I am needed and I am needy. So Paul points to the household of Stephanus and he says, come under them. They, they have a legitimate position in the church because of selfless sacrifice. And their life is to be emulated. And it is to be followed. Verse 17, he says, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. It's interesting. Okay? Paul's saying it is good and honorable to acknowledge, to come under the sacrificial lives of such examples. It's a good thing to say and to acknowledge and to thank people that serve in the context of church life. With the hope that what? Not that people start to say, whoa. No. 
but so that my heart would be challenged by their example to live differently, to lay hold of the way that they see the body of Christ and value it and commit and devote to it. Paul encourages us to honor them and to submit to them because they placed a proper value on life together. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Stephanus is named a number of times in the New Testament. These other two men are never mentioned. And one commentator said this, because often the church is strengthened and supported and encouraged by unknowns. There is a lot of valuable service that happens in the context of this church that the average person will never know about. Okay? And I think it's important that sometimes, because as leaders, sometimes we, we need to people, get people more involved. Our concern as leadership should be, not are people involved in official service, visible, but are people gaining an understanding of life as family, of life together, and as there is this increase organically of service to one another, growth amongst one another, that's what body life is all about. The gifting of God on the church by His Spirit is so that we can build each other up. That's the call of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. Purpose of gifts, so that your life is enhanced and encouraged by my sacrifice. That's the call of God. And so Paul, as he, as he thinks about these men, it's kind of like this. And this is the way one writer said it. He said, great is the tribe of the unknowns. Great is the tribe of the unknowns. The names that don't show up on a list of serving, but are devoted to serving others. And there are many of you in this church that serve unseen. It's one of the greatest tests. And the applause that you seek is when nobody knows and nobody sees. Can you continue to serve Christ? Because what motivates you the most is not the applause of men. It is the approval of God. Right? And I think that's something that sometimes we've got to step back and say, that, that's, there's two guys here that are never mentioned again. But Paul could look at them and say, you know what? When they came, they supplied what was lacking from you. So what Corinth couldn't do, because Paul was in Macedonia, these people were sent by Corinth, and it was just like the whole church came. That's how selfless and sacrificial these three as a team were. Paul says, they refreshed my spirit and yours also. You know why? Because calling in ministry doesn't begin when you go to do the work of God. Calling in ministry begins where you are. And what you are is what you will be when you move your location. Okay? As a church family, we've been blessed over the years with some people that have made a substantial impact on our church. And uh, because he's not here, I will mention his name. Uh, Don Wagner is one of these people. Uh, he is, kind of oversees all our audiovisual and all the stuff that keeps pastors from being nervous on Sunday morning. Okay, And Don, <clears throat> sometimes I'll say, hey, Don, just most people don't sacrifice like you do. Most people don't make the kind of commitment that you make. And sometimes I just want to say, thank you. And Don's always like, stop. He's like, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come into the context of church life. 
and begin to ask, how can I... How can I begin to minister to people here? How can I begin to serve people here? And obviously, we don't need 50 people running sound, right? But Don saw a niche and a, a way that he could serve here. And I want to tell you something. Cause I wouldn't say this with him here because he would get embarrassed. Um, unknown hours are put in to having our services run smoothly by two people, Don and Mark. Um, tireless every Saturday through the week making sure that things are as they should be. I said, why do you say that? Because of this. Don is the most low-key guy in our church, bar none. Okay? I mean, seriously. Okay? He's not low energy. That's not what I'm saying. Because he's committed. I, and that's what I think about Don. When I asked, he said, Tim, whenever we've been in a church, our question always was, how can we serve the body of Christ? And folks, here's what I want to say. If we had a church with 50 people like that, it would be transformational. It would. If we had people that said, you know what, there are weak links in the body of Christ like a Timothy, and you know what, that's my goal to serve that person. If we had people like Paul, who could say, I don't care who does it, because I'm not worried about getting the praise. I just want to make sure it's getting done. And so we can send Apollos. And a guy like Stephanus, self-appointed servant of Christ. I love that. Who knew that as a result of the work of the grace of God in his life. And what, what it means, self-appointed, is he, he volunteered himself to serve in a committed positional fashion. He just made loving others something that caused Paul to say, hey, line up under people like Stephanus and his friends. And may God, within the context of the chapel of, at Warren Valley, raise up a tribe of people who don't need recognition, who don't seek it, but people who understand that I, every believer, is gifted by the Spirit of God to make a difference in the lives of others. The gifts of the Spirit are not for personal benefit, it's not for personal enhancement. It's so that I can get on my knees and begin to serve the needs of others. That's God's picture of the church. And what drives us into that service is an understanding that we are the body of Christ and that we are the family of God. A group of people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been cleansed, forgiven, who have the hope of heaven, who have the best yet to come in their future. And that allows them to sacrifice in dramatic fashions in the presence. Because they've laid hold of the end of the game. And may God help us as a church family to do that. Now it's interesting, I skip verses 13 and 14. I'll just read them for you. This is Paul's encouragement in the midst of this challenge. He says, be on your guard. Why? Because Christian living is not easy. It's not. He also says to them, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Here's the truth. Service can be draining. Helping people can be hurtful at times. And when I say that, I mean it can, it can do damage to you. It can cost you. But that's the life of Christ, isn't it? Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. 
Folks, if we are to be anything, we are to be little Christ. That's what the word Christian means. People that courageously face difficulty and do the will of God in spite of the cost, that's the life of Christ. And here's what I thought of. This, this idea of, 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 of being courageous, being on your guard, doing everything in love, indicates that this standing is in the context of community. It's not in the context of, in everything, love yourself. It's in the context of everything that you're doing, your courageous standing, that you are loving others and loving God. That's the call that God has. The truth is, the Christian living is challenging. It is difficult, but we overcome our fear by action because we know what is at stake. The word courageous here literally means act like men. And ladies, I think you understand what that means. It's, sometimes you ladies want to say to the men, would you just like man up? Would you act like a man? That's the call of this text. It's to face, and it was a combat terminology, and in the ancient era, obviously women did not participate in combat. But these are the kinds of words that a general would typically speak as the, the speech before D-Day. These are the, be courageous, be committed, be sacrificial. Aristotle defined it as a balance between fear and confidence. I am scared to death, but I am going into this. That's the call of the church. And then the crowning exhortation is do everything in love. As you're standing courageously and valiantly and firmly, never forget that you represent the cross of Christ. Then in all of your warring, in the emotional and personal realm, in all of that, the aim is that people would know that Christ loves them. As you come to the end of this text, there is this challenge. And I think I could summarize it by saying something like this. If I am not closely aligned with solid, spirit-filled brothers and sisters in Christ doing life together, I will find it harder, if not impossible, to bear with standing firm because of isolation. Okay, it is hard to stand firm together. And I would argue that it is virtually impossible to stand firm in isolation. And this text calls us repeatedly to stand together. Now, as this text ends, this Paul's just kind of his quick closing greeting. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The idea of that is an expression of deep commitment and devotion and affection. That's the idea of that in the Old Te- or New Testament era. Don't you notice what the text says next? Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, which is to say that Paul had a secretary who did the recording for him, and at the end, to make it personal in his sloppy style, presumably, Paul wanted to be sure that the ending was personalized. Why? Because in this text, he has said some incredibly difficult things, but he wants him to know that it comes from his heart. So he takes up the pen in his gnarly hand and writes his name as a means of saying, this is personal. It's from me for you. 
And then you read this next statement. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think about this statement. I think what Paul is saying is something like this, because if I go back to chapter 1, I find that there were people who were saying that the gospel of God that saves is foolishness. You remember that? Paul, I think, has that thought in the back of his mind. And as he closes the letter, he realizes that there are some in the church who have not come to Jesus. And he wants them to realize that failure to treasure Christ has an eternal consequence. Just as treasuring Christ pays eternal dividends. When we come to the Lord's table this morning, we want to be perfectly clear. One's attitude toward and relationship with Jesus is of ultimate significance and eternal importance. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, every time you do this, you are proclaiming in the context of life together the work of Jesus as hope for sinners in need of a Savior. To ignore that work, to fail to treasure it and own it and love it is to be lost. It is to be condemned. That's true. And our aim in participating in the Lord's table is to remind ourselves repeatedly, afresh, that to treasure Christ is to be so incredibly and profoundly blessed in the context of life together. You see, this treasuring of Christ that is the proclamation of the Lord's table is for people that have come to trust in Him and know Him. The aim of it is that I would be reminded of what the cost that Jesus Christ paid on Calvary's cross to bring me into His family. I would be reminded of that and being reminded of what it took for entry would remind me of the incredible value that is present in the family of God. And the call is commit courageously to life together because life together in the Lord's table is proclaiming Jesus until He comes. We're going to share in the Lord's table this morning. We're going to have the elements passed. If you are a believer in Jesus, we want to encourage you this morning to eat that bread and drink that cup. And I encourage you today, do it together. Do it with your mind conscious that I am part of something much larger than myself that God in His grace has called me into. And as you partake and as you are reminded in the elements, say, God, I, I, I want to be more deeply committed to what you're doing in my church family, in your church. Help me strengthen me give me the courage to sacrifice give me the courage to stand together in the work that you were doing father would you bless our celebration of this table this morning bless as we partake of the elements together help us to remember that as we do it we are in partaking proclaiming this cross work of jesus Lord, maybe as we bow our heads, your word calls us to examine ourselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. God, let us be sensitive to your spirit as you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word this morning. 
concerning our view of life together. Maybe some of us, God, need to say, God, my view of life together has been weak, anemic, and maybe even selfish at times. Maybe you just need to say to God, God, I want to love your church. I want to be more devoted to life together. So God, help us. Exalt Jesus as we partake of these elements, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.